the values needs to be tangible. So it drives our decision as a nation. It drives the way we live. It drives the way we do things. It drives the way we work. So we need to come down to those kind of value-based conversation. And it has to be very tangible. Otherwise, we'll keep questioning whether something is right or wrong because we have nothing to measure it against. Hello. My name is Matthew Sortino and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Today I'm speaking to Abiola Ajetamobi. Abiola is a director at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre and he's currently leading a holistic and strength-based model of innovation that is driven by working in partnership with people seeking asylum to meet their needs. She is a social innovator who is passionate about forming creative and sustainable solutions to increase the economic and social participation of people that would otherwise be left behind in society. Abiola works to ensure that those seeking asylum have the level of agency required to reach self-actualization and independence. Her professional background spans across humanitarian organisations, businesses, accounting and financial services, social entrepreneurship, not-for-profit and the public service. Abiola and I discuss growing up in Nigeria, coming to Australia as an asylum seeker, the importance of community for mental health being a leader, choosing your attitude, the danger of a single story, identity politics, working at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre and overseeing the new innovation hub in Dandenong. We also talk in a very open and candid way about the failures of the federal government and the plight of asylum seekers, COVID-19 as a potential lesson in empathy, questioning our values and how you can help out at the ASRC. Abiola really inspired me and reaffirmed just how grateful I am to have this platform as a way to have amazing conversations and share them with my community. If you, like me, find yourself captivated by Abiola and her work with the ASRC and would like to contribute to the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre in any way, please visit asrc.org.au. Once again, thank you for listening to Moments of Clarity. I now bring you Abiola Ajetamobi. Abiola, welcome to Moments of Clarity. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Really great to be here. Yeah, fantastic. We we had a discussion earlier about, you know, the purpose of this podcast, which is really about aligning values and actions and how I felt through my journey that I had, you know, a strong sense of what what my values were, or at least I thought I did, but I wasn't aligning them all the time with the way I was acting and behaving. Mm. Um, And and my, my aim here is to talk to people that I believe are, you know, aligning their values and their actions, at least in, in, in the, the best way they can. No, no one's perfect, but we're all, we're all on this journey and attempting. You're working at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre at the moment and yes. doing an amazing job there and I've been following you for a little while. I was getting your emails for a while before oh, actually contacting you, you and, and seeing the great work you've been doing. And Thank um, you. Yeah, I, I want to know a little bit about your journey in, in general, like a bit of a biography and history of you both personally and professionally to from from the beginning to to where you are today, and maybe a few key defining moments. Yeah, if we if we have to go through it all, I think we'll probably be here for days. But I'll try <laughs> and um, summarize it as much as possible. So I'm originally from Nigeria, um, and I've been in Australia now for nearly twelve years, which is kind of feels like a lifetime because of the journey and and the things that I've had to navigate in that time. But growing up in Nigeria for me was a very interesting time of my life. Was I was apart from the fact that I was growing up in a third world country, it was also that I, the family that I was growing up in. 
you know, the, the, the challenges of having to grow up in a polygamous home. I'm one of 25 children. And also having to be in an environment where women are often seen but not heard. I never had, I was, uh, yeah, I never had uh, any opportunity to even dream or let alone talk about a bright future. So it was really a very challenging upbringing and also as a woman as well. And the kind of risk and vulnerability that you get exposed to at a very early age in that kind of environment. But I managed to get through it. I managed to scale through it, but not until I actually came to Australia. So prior to coming to Australia, I've worked in the not-for-profits and I've also worked with um, state government and federal government back in Nigeria. But my best, my key interest was around economic empowerment, particularly for rural women, women that are otherwise not able to contribute economically or socially to their community, often isolated and, and not able to understand what their value is to society and to themselves. So my role then was to support them um, by helping them to understand, one, you have a value. Secondly, you have a skill, talent, and really unpacking what those are and supporting them to translate that into a viable business. So that was what I was doing in Nigeria before coming to Australia. But ever since I've been in Australia, the journey I've, been, I've looked a bit different, but yet similar, which in some ways is really fascinating by the time I, I reflect on, on my journey. But I think coming to Australia really helped me to really look up and look forward for the first time and also be able to understand the role that I can play not only as a woman, but as someone valuable in the community myself. Because it's some, something to encourage others is one, to start to see yourself and become visible in that process and, and being able to really explore what it means for you to be in a space like this. I was very fortunate to be connected to people that really helped me and supported me in my journey and helped me to really see how much I can maximize the opportunities in this country. So right from education, education was a great enabler for me. I had to go back to school, learn English upon arrival in Australia, and then worked my way gradually to where I am today. But I must say that that curiosity, that quest to learn, to grow, and to self-develop, both internally and externally and in my community, has been really one of the things that has helped me, not only to increase my level of exposure, but to be able to be my best in everything I do. So fast track 12 years, I'm now working for Asylum Seeker Resource Center. But prior to working for the Asylum Seeker Resource Center, I've also worked for another seven organizations, same like all migrants, you know, coming to a new country and having to navigate their ways. You know, I've worked in a crisis relief center as an operations manager, which I really, really loved. I've also worked in the local government as a client community strengthening facilitator. I've also worked in, in the education institute at the local TAFE, supporting international students to integrate into the community. So I've kind of done a bit of all of that. So coming to ASRC and saying the role advertised, just like it brought all my skills into one P PD. How wonderful could that be? So I didn't have any choice than to just go for it. But I've been very intentional about working for the SRC or supporting people seeking asylum because I came to Australia as an asylum seeker myself. And I believe the journey that I've been able to attain until now have been one that have been really, really supported by people, individuals, and the community at large. And I just want to expose more people to that. And I wanted to support more people. And yes, that was just mm -hmm. the central point 
where that could be made possible. So I've been on the lookout for work there. And once I saw this opportunity came up, it was just a perfect fit for me. Oh, brilliant. That, that's a, an amazing journey and, and one that we could, you know, spend a lot of time unpacking each and every individual part. As you said, a few days would be required, but I would love to delve in a little bit in certain sections. And, and the first one would be, you know, I could say, uh, talk about your perspective, talk about that upbringing that you had, a, a very different perspective than maybe a lot of Australians tend to have, a lot of people around the world tend to have in many ways. What, what misconceptions do people in Australia tend to have about someone that is an asylum seeker, maybe about Nigeria as well, and about how it is to grow up as a woman in a, a nation or in an area of Nigeria that puts less um, worth into a female over a male in, in many ways? Hmm. What impact does it have? Like I know that did a lot of people say, oh, they're used to that. They know what that's like, you know. Uh, they don't know any better or, or those sort of words which are really harmful and, and, and horrible in many ways because we're all human. Can you explain some of your perspective growing up and what you felt and what you wanted to maybe aspire to and then, you know, that journey into seeking asylum and gaining, I guess, residency in Australia and, and, and this is your home? I think that's a very interesting question. Thank you for that. I would say that growing up in Nigeria for me was very uh, was a very interesting time of my life. Like I said before, also it was a time where I couldn't re- I couldn't discover myself. I didn't know what opportunities are ahead for me because I couldn't even see any. It was just about living on a day to day basis. And I think the the misconception that Australians will have in there is that most Nigerians in this community or in this country, I would say about 90%, if not 80%, are really highly skilled, highly qualified individuals. So when they meet people like myself, when I newly arrived and I couldn't speak English properly, I didn't have any, I didn't have very advanced education background as most Nigerians that have come across do. I'm seeking asylum. I didn't come to Australia as a skilled migrant. So all these things don't add up. And people start to look at you differently. I also even, even faced that internalized displacement within my community when I arrived because they were I was very different to a picture of people that they know that are migrating to a country like this. So that created a, a, a bit of an isolation in that space a little bit at a time. But ever since, you know, we've come a long way since then. And also in terms of the, the Nigerian sector or Nigerian setting, or the world at large where women are seen and not heard. I think it's, we're changing the course of time. The times are changing so drastically. But I think also because of the family that I grew up in and the environment I grew up in really harness, you know, why a male domination is required because women are often reliant on the male. They're often reliant on them for accommodation, for housing, for feeding, for looking after themselves, for even just buying basic things for themselves. So the ability to really stand up and stand strong and stand tall and stand out can be very challenging. But I think that is all that is changing now with time. And also, I think also another thing that I would probably put to that in terms of the misconception around people seeking asylum is that dependency syndrome. People feel like, you know, we, you, we watch the news all the time. We watch TV. You never see a child. You know, like my daughters always remind me, like, mom, oh, all these children that were saying about 10 years since we've been in this country that are shown on the TV with flies all around them from Africa, still the same children that are shown 10 years later with flies all around them. So there's recycling information. And those things can create a bit of a narrative 
around African community or narrative around people seeking asylum or even the demographics of the less privileged in our society because of the, the image or the media perception or the construed policy or punitive policy that are, are tagged around this. But one thing I want to clarify there is that people are individuals. We are all humans at the end of the day. And I think this is one of the fascinating things that COVID has taught us, that we are all humans and we all face things the same way. It might be different in some ways in terms of the level of privileges that we have to each other or whatever, but this is a very small world. It's a very small world. It's a very small world. If COVID can bring us to our knees, the way this is done, I think we should start to think about humanity differently. And we should start to think about the contribution we make to the climate, the contribution we make to the our environment, to supporting each other very differently as well. And I also think that the charity sector has played a role in that perception too, because it's always been about, oh, they, they are helpless, help them. They are they cannot help themselves help them. But I'm I'm hoping that we start to change the narrative, which is what the innovation hub is actually set to do, is that to change that narrative and start to help to showcase people based on their strengths, their capabilities, their ability to look after themselves, to make right choices, to contribute back meaningfully to society. And I think that is possible because myself is a evidence of that. If I could come this far in 12 years, I think anybody can. I'm not extraordinary in any way. I've come across people that have got even higher degree, higher qualification, higher level of resilience than myself. And I know if they have the opportunity that I did have or I'm having now, they will be able to make the best of this of this country and contribute back really meaningfully. So there's, there's a lot of things that we could unpack there. But I think also it's really about that humanizing of people and seeing people for who, who they are and who they like to be. And I think one of the steps to do that is really getting to a place whereby, you know, think about what you wish for yourselves. You know, if I could wish for myself to be successful, I could wish for myself to be safe. I could wish for myself to live under a roof. I could wish for myself to, to have a job and give, have that dignity of work. I can wish it for other people. And that is where that kind of personalized approach starts to come in and we start to see each other very differently. Oh, thank you. And I'd love to unpack the work that you're doing with the Innovation Hub over there in, um, it's Dandenong, isn't it? Dandenong area mm. and what's going to go into that. But you mentioned the story about of an individual and, and how we're all individuals, we're all humans. A lot of people are very rarely actually able to hear the the story of that person seeking asylum. What was the process? Did you say, I want to go to Australia or was it more, I want to leave Nigeria? What was the, the, the moment where you said, I'm leaving? And what was the moment that you said, Australia is the place I want to be? Did that happen like that? I, I, I Enlighten me, please. Yeah, I think, I, yeah, it's always been a question I've been asked. And also, I'm always very careful how I respond to it. One, because we're in a punitive policy environment. It has not been a fair system for all, and people have been have not been fairly treated or even assessed based on their own plight and the challenges that they've been through. So it's always very, I'm always very diplomatic in my response because it can be used as a way to frame other people's situation. We mm. are so, as a society, and, and the ability to be educated or wanting to be educated around this is very limited, particularly for decision makers. So I'm always very careful on how I say it. So it could, it could not be seen as a way to judge other people that might be going through a similar experience to myself. But what I would say in that space is that coming to Australia for me is not a choice. 
I probably wouldn't have never chose to be in Australia, to be honest with you, because I'm very far away from my community. I'm very far away from my family. I'm very far away from people that I grew up with and the environment that I love dearly. So coming to Australia as will probably not be my number one choice if I have to choose. It's by default, but it's a home for me now. And it's a place that I'm very, very proud to be in. And every time I have the opportunity to reflect on this, I spend that time to express my deep gratitude and appreciation to the First Nation people for giving us the opportunity and the, and the environment to be able to feel safe and be able to live on this beautiful land. I think it's just a very rare opportunity to, to have at this time of my life. Everyone desires to be safe. Everyone desires to have a good future. And everyone desires that, that opportunity to be able to call a place home. And for me, Australia is that place now that I call home. But I, I wouldn't have choose to come to Australia, to be honest with you. It's just by default. That's the case for most people seeking asylum because it's never a choice to leave your country or it's never a choice to find yourself where you find yourself. Eventually, it's just life. Life just happens. And that also gives us a, a sense of privilege that, and also appreciation that where we've actually found ourselves now is where that is safe enough that I can call home. And I wish that can be the story of other people as well that are still going through the process. Yeah, you mentioned, I guess, the some of the negative things you experienced growing up earlier, but then you talked about the love and the the beauty that also existed in your, I guess, upbringing as well. Can you go through some of those? You mentioned one of 25 children growing up, loving the, the beauty around you and, and being that your country, that that is your culture, that is your, your everything, like we all experience where we're born. So can you go through a little bit about all those joys and, and the, the beautiful parts of your upbringing as well? Yeah, I think it's, I think the most beautiful thing about it is a sense of identity. It's a sense of feeling like you belong somewhere. It might not be the best environment for you, but it's the environment that you've grown to live in and to love and to appreciate. And also I think the sense of community, the genuineness of community. I think that's one of the things that I've loved about my growing up, you know, just that sense of everyone is together. You know, there's an adage in Africa that says uh, a community, a village, raise a child. So you've grown to know five mothers in your life. You've grown to know 10 sisters. You've lived, I've lived with maybe three or four of my aunties for a period of my, a significant period of my life where they've actually have to house me for a time when my mother was going through family violence and other things that was happening in her life. So I think that is what the community means for me, that sense of identity, that sense of security and safety. And safety sometimes can be questioned because if it's safe enough, why did you leave? That's what people would say. But I would say safety has different facets to it. Safety can be based on your environment and people around you and the war and things, and, and that can compromise your safety. But the identity, the safety in your identity, in who you are, and how that upbringing are framed and shaped your values, that's the kind of safety I'm talking about. In, in terms of that safety, uh, what are some of the things that Nigeria, and we'll move to your current work in Australia and everything today, but to get a bit of context, what is Nigeria facing and what, and what has it faced in the past that has made it, you know, unsafe for many people? I think religious crisis has been one of the biggest ones. And also I think another thing as well is it's around um, 
the family separation, violence, family violence, domestic violence, and other things as well. So it could be different for everybody, like I said. You know, I've got a very good friend that's from Nigeria, and I'll bring in, even though we're from, like, almost the same state, we're from the same state, and our towns are very close to each other. We have two separate experiences, and our journey to Australia is clearly different. So it can be different for everyone, but I would say it's mainly, one of the things I love about humanity is that it's very relatable. Relatable in the sense that, you know, when you're talking about domestic violence, it's happening in this community as well. When you're talking about, um, even though we don't have war in this country, we still have our people and our soldiers fighting war and, and supporting other countries. So there's a lot of relatable experiences there that brings us closer as much as we're different. So it's, it, we're different, but it actually brings that similarity to it as well. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a, a couple of areas I'd like to touch on. First of all, mental health and, and how there, are, there is a mental health crisis in, you know, nations like Australia, like the United States, yeah. like Great Britain, that are suffering, as you said, there, are, there is issues of domestic violence and, and conflict and, and all sorts of things that we tend to, we're getting better at not ignoring it, but in the past it's been ignored a lot. Mm. Do you think that, mental health issues that are caused in somewhere like Australia versus somewhere like Nigeria, obviously all individuals are different in why, but is there something that's lacking in our current environment, in our current setting that is making the rate of mental illness pre-COVID, this is pre-COVID, grow? Is there something that's happening that we're, that we're lacking? You said it was a village, an identity that helped raise you and, and raises children in Nigeria. Is that lacking in, in our urbanised, individualised society, do you think? It will be very hard to tell because everyone's experience is different. And I don't want to be speaking for still so many people that don't even feel some people like me deserve to be here. So speaking on behalf of the nation might be, um, might, might rub them the wrong way. But I, what I will say based on my own personal experience and being able to live here is that I think that there's more that we could do there's more that we could do to draw us closer. There's more that we could do to build and strengthen that human connection. Like my neighbors, you know, some my, my, some of my neighbors, I don't even know them by name. We don't even greet. I haven't, I had a neighbor that the child and my child were actually in the same grade, in the same school. And we would drive our child to school and this neighbor too would drive the child to school. And we, and we he never even give us the opportunity to even say hi, let alone to discuss how we can be doing coupling and supporting one another. So everyone is so internalized and so focused on self. And I think self could be damaging, which is one of the reasons why I love to work in a not-for-profit space because it becomes not about you anymore. You lose that sense of self. You, it's ripped off your body. You'd wake up every morning thinking about the change you want to make for others. And I think most Australians have that inbuilt in them, but it doesn't just translate to behaviour in some ways. You know, you can, give a, you can give $10 here and there. You can give some significant amount of money sometimes as well to charity to do that job for you. But what are you doing personally as individuals to actually bring that community to life around you and open and expose yourself and, and give that opportunity for to be a bit vulnerable and to, and to be able to build trust with people around you so we can support one another a bit better. And I think also in COVID, one of the things that happened in my street, myself and one of my neighbours, we wrote a letter 
to all our strict, you know, just to say, you know, we're, we're here, we want to support. If you need anything, let us know. We can run to the shops for you and all of things like that. You know, we only had maybe one or two people responded, but I'm just saying that those are the kind of things that we need to start to open up a bit more and start to embrace one another a bit more. In my form of residence as well, we used to have a street Christmas party that we started, but it was successful because most of us are from much cultural communities. So we understand the importance of coming out and and gathering and and socializing that way. So I think I think also another thing is that because this is a Western culture, people are very mindful of not becoming a burden or a reliance on others. So they tend to kind of close in a little bit. But in the community where we come from, people are so nosy. You know, you, you only need to look a certain way, and everyone wants to know how you're going. So that's kind of sense of community that I grew up in. So it's very different to here. We're slowly adjusting, but that part of the culture where people are internalized and, yeah, are not able to engage with one another in a very truthful, sincere, or um, not sincere in terms of trust. I'm talking about sincere in terms of how you're going, how you're feeling, what is going on in your life and how people can support you. You know, it can be, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a very, it's a very, very distant relationship compared to where I'm coming from. So yeah, that's something that I'm hold, hoping to hold dearly and to try to start to, to do for my children to start to see the importance of speaking up and getting help and, and seeking help and being able to speak to others and, and, and reach out when you need. I think, yeah, it's, it, it can be a very, very tricky question to answer because I don't want people to feel like I'm speaking for them. I'm clearly speaking for my, based on my own personal experience and what, and what I've experienced since being in this country and the things that I know might, uh, yeah, if I, if I had to adopt that kind of part of the culture, it will, it will cost me severely because I'm, I'm coming from an environment that is contrary. And, and by the time I start to internalize myself and start to do things my own way or not reach out when I need help or whatever, then it starts to change the way my mental health is being maintained and how I, and how I can be supported and how I'm letting people in. And it's, it just leads to a different um, psychological issues. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love it. I, I think isolation is, is key in, in terms of um, once you start feeling alone and maybe a bit more distant from others. We're, we're social beings as humans, mostly, and we, and we mostly want to be part of a community, whether we know it or not. And I do see higher fences going up, more cameras to stop people entering your property, um, more windows being closed. And I'm at the age now, my, my partner's expecting a baby and and most of my friends uh, at that point of having their first child, but so many mm. are experiencing isolation as a mother, as a as a mm. as a parent. Not because they don't have support. There's amazing support networks, but it's almost like it's an expectation that this is your burden rather than your gift to share with your community. It's no, it's it's my turn mm. to raise my child in in this way. I get a thousand rules thrown at me from a thousand different people, and I have to do it by the book, and um, and then you see the the mental health start to deteriorate from people as they're mm-hmm. more and more isolated because my baby yeah, won't sleep. It's, it's a pressure. It's a pressure. Mm-hmm. It's very pressuring. It's very hard. It's very um, isolating space to be. Like I said to you, in where I'm coming from, a village raised a child. You know, like I can I can do something out and about, and my auntie will come to the house the next day to tell me 
tell me off in front of my mother and my mother will support my auntie and I'll be okay with it because I know they have my best interest at heart. I know they're really looking out for me. And sometimes it can be done to the extreme as well. But what I'm saying in there is that we need to kind of allow more people in. We need to, like, sometimes I'm, I'm part of a big um, multiple forums that I support women, emerging leaders, current leaders. And I just wanted to bring women to, I just love it. I just enjoy it. And some people will say, where do you get the time? You know, how could you do this? How do you manage all these relationships, all these networks? How do you do this on top of work and all of that? But those are the things that helps my psychological safety because I'm letting more people in once I'm building this kind of relationships and I'm finding joy in helping other people and I'm finding joy in being able to contribute to the broader society. So even though I'm a Christian, I do my bit in the church. I also do my bit in my community with the African community. I'm part of the United African Farm. I do my bit with the Women of Color Forum. I do my bit with other women and other women gathering as well. You know, I try to place myself in different multiple spaces where that sense of community can be enhanced and facilitated. Yeah, and, and and that idea of leadership and being there for others, you know, being vulnerable but also being that person that people can lean on when they feel vulnerable. Mm. Was there a time where that didn't occur? Was there a time where you wanted to be that or you needed that help yourself and there was no one there to turn to? or mm. And then you found that you needed to enter that space to make sure that others didn't go through that? Was that something that drove you? I, w- I wouldn't say that, to be honest. I feel like... What actually makes me to do this more is because of my upbringing. I was always part of a bigger group. I was always part of a bigger community. I was always part of things. And even though I didn't understand climate change or didn't understand the big issues that people are now advocating for at the time, I was still part of forums that are looking at bettering other people's lives. Mm -hmm. You know, like, used to have my aunties, my uncles, even people that, you know, that are not, are not, are not even our relatives coming to the house and sleeping over, you know, like it's always been about other people. That's how I grew up. So that's something that I'm still very passionate about. And also coming to Australia and starting to find my path. I feel one of the things I would do for myself as a, dis, the most disservice is to start to realize my color as a limitation to engage with my brother community. So I, I I always want to be out there. I always want to be part of the broader community. I don't want my color to be that definition to say, oh, because of this, then I'm limited to this. Or because people have reacted one way, then I would not reach out again. You know, I always see myself as a valuable person and I can contribute. And I'm, and I'm intentional about contributing. I'm not doing it to get anything in return. So that's why most of the time the, the negative reactions don't get to me to be honest, because that's not, I'm not expecting anything back. I'm just doing it because I want to be part of the community. I'm not doing it because I've looked after someone. I want them now to look after me. You know, that's never the intention. And, and, and I made up my mind to be valuable. You know, I start to contend with being valuable and what does being valuable means? What does it mean to actually truly contribute? What does it mean to actually be there for someone? What does it mean to actually represent a community or an organization in the best way possible? And how do I kind of start to develop that? So I I was a bit intentional about that approach. And I think that has really helped me as well. And I also think also being a woman of color, 
and, and I've noticed that there's not enough women of color in leadership, it's not by default. It's just a new, it's just a new generation of people now that we're breeding that are really challenging the status quo and are really bringing, lifting those conversations that will otherwise be slow on the carpet. I felt like I needed to be there. Mm-hmm. I needed to be the hand-holding. I needed to support other women mm-hmm. to really exercise their agency and not see their color as a barrier to to engagement as well. So I think those things are the ones driving me. It's not about an exchange of of response or of care or of support or whatever. So it never gets to me if I'm having negative reaction or I'm not getting the level of support that I'm giving out to other people. Yeah, earlier you talked about how people would often say, you know, how do you do this? How how do you help so many others? How do you find the time? And that's often said about a lot of people that do volunteering or, or other work outside of what we say is work, you know, that idea of work being your hour to this time, you work hard, you make your money, and then you go and you have fun or you do whatever. And, and But that's very isolating too, especially in COVID times without that community, people working till 11 o'clock at night and then waking up in front of the computer again and, and just going at it. And there is no community within that or very rarely there is. And that's, I mean, talking in a generalised term, there's many jobs out there that allow for community but do you find that you've been able to find the sweet spot in a way where work that is purposeful for others is also purposeful for yourself aligns with your your values you're able to do what you would be wanting to do in your private life in your public life too and in your professional life you've been able to connect those dots yeah i think the connecting the dot really helps and really gives you that wrap around a sense of, you know, I'm hitting all the marks, so I'm doing all the things that I want to do in one go. But sometimes it doesn't always happen like that. Sometimes you have to step out of your comfort zone. Your work can be your comfort zone, but you have to step out into other spaces as well in order to to find that comfort and find that dotted line that you can eventually connect. It doesn't always connect itself. That's something I, I really wanted to point out. But the power and the level of influence that you start to have when you start to engage in those spaces, really would eventually connect the dot because you start to speak with people that are like-minded. You start to get to know people that have got the same um, the same level of um, of interest as you, the same the same course that you're pursuing, or even might be different. And also, you start to understand and make up your mind as a leader in terms of okay, what am I doing here? How am I contributing? How is the diligence coming to the work that I'm doing or to the space that I'm contributing in? And how do I sustain the level of intelligence required to be able to continue to contribute actively into the spaces as well? So I think the dot will connect itself eventually, but it doesn't have to always align to feel that you're putting your best or you're you're at your best in an environment. But I always say something that um, it's easier to do it and it's easier to create a level of influence. It's easier to build a movement and a community when you're in an inclusive environment, an environment that embraces change, an environment that gets what you're trying to achieve. They might not be willing or have the time or the energy to contribute to it, but they get it. And they don't, and an environment that don't contend with you being exceptional, that don't give you that um, feeling of exclusion, that feeling of, oh, you know, I like you, but don't like the others. You know, I've had people had conversation with me before and said, oh, you are a very different Africa. You know, I, I you are a very lovely person, but most Africans, you know, like they had to distance me from my people 
as a way of bringing me in, but excluding others, you know? So you have to kind of be mindful of the kind of relationships that you're building as well. That is those that are clearly aligning with your values, clearly bringing the best out of you and helping you to be the best, the better person that you would like to be. Earlier, you spoke about some uh, global issues, you know, um, climate change, the environment, things like that. But even, you know, we, we might be talking corruption in politics, we might be talking about poverty. And then these issues end up being very big and very distant to people and, and them personally and say, well, I can't see climate change in front of me. You, you know, fires have always happened, whatever it might be. You talked then about the way you create localised empowerment, you know, by, by mm. being a voice, by showing that this is the way forward and empowering others to journey with you and grow and innovate with the new innovation hub and, and be who they want to be and empowered. Is there is there a um, intention to, to start local and go global or is it just my role being a one person, one small person in a way? All I can do is touch those around me to start with and then hopefully we start a movement that can improve our, our world or even if it doesn't, at least our little community is better by 1%, 10 15%, whatever it might be. What, what is the process between linking that uh, small level, small step change to really worrying about the world and saying I want to improve this global space and then a lot of people get stuck in the middle and say I, I can't do it all, I'm just going to bury my head in the sand and stop, not because I want to, but because it's easier. Yeah, and I've had that before myself, you know, like it, the sense of, yeah, someone asked me a question, I think um, very recently in one of the articles that's just mm-hmm. going to be published soon about, you know, what has been my reflection, you know, what could I do differently in the 12 years that I've been in this country? And one of the things, and the thing I said I would do differently is to realise myself early on and not let the the circumstances or the imagery that people have formed of me to shape who I am. And and that's one of the things that we need to still always try to understand is to the realization of self. And we need to travel inside and really figure out exactly what we are here to do and how we are what what we're here to contribute and to society at large. And that will help us to frame how we want to go about it or how we want to change it or the level of contribution that we want to make. Our contribution in different spaces might be different and our, and our, and our involvement might be very different. I think for me personally, the, in the Black Lives Matter protests is what is the change I always needed since I've been in this country, to be honest, in the sense that it helped me to fully understand my existence and the opportunity that I have and the platform that I hold and why. And I think once we start to travel inside and start to question those and start to understand exactly where our contributions lie, then we'll start to shape it into what scale based on our time, based on our involvement, based on what fits with our work, what fits with our lifestyle, what fits with our commitment as a parent, and all of that start to shape in. So it might be that you're part of a local community. That is totally fine. You're doing your bit. It might be that you're part of a bigger movement. It might be that you're actually leading a movement. So it could be very different. But I think it's one that self-actualization is what is mostly most important because that will frame your identity and, and, and your understanding of what your individual or collective contribution looks like and what role you can play as a person into that space. 
At what point in that 12 years in Australia where you said, you know, it was about that self-actualization, self-realization of, of your worth, what point did that, can you remember the spark in your mind that you just shifted? Did it, did it come from being internal and, and working through your own sort of internal battles or, or did it come from actually achieving something, you know, maybe you just did it. You just said, look, maybe I'm not ready for this, maybe whatever, but I'm just going to give it a go. And then you did it and you succeeded or you, you, you entered, you ended up on the other side saying, Hey, it just takes, you know, to give it a go, to make it happen sometimes. Then, and that gave you the Mm -hmm. power that, that you feel inside. What was that journey like? I think to be honest with you, my journey came at a little sense of rebellion. When I had started to have people knock me back, when I started to have people question why I'm this zealous, why I'm this excited, you know, I am, I remember working in child age care and, you know, any spare time I have in my break, I'll be studying for my uni and, and people will question, do you want to be the, the first female prime minister? There was no Julia Gillard at the time. You know, what's your, what's, why, why are you so curious? Why are you, why are you dra- pushing yourself so hard? So once I see that those things are being questioned, my willingness and my eagerness to be better, is being questioned, then it kind of built a sense of rebellion. You know, it becomes a why not, you know, rather than a, oh, okay, let me bury my head. You know, people are really not welcoming me or not seeing me as a leader that can contribute to society or whatever. So it becomes more of a why not. And I think that's where kind of that tiny level of rebellion came in, came into the space because I was really wanting to prove people wrong. I was wanting to prove myself as well that I can actually do something. But I wasn't doing it with an intention of having an household name or building a brand. I was doing it with an intention of if I can come this far, many people can come this far. And how can I support them to get there? And how can we start to change the narrative around how people seeking asylum are seen, how women of color are seen as leaders in this society, how we are respected, how we are acknowledged, how we are valued for our contribution, and how much more we can bring if we find spaces and opportunity for that social and economic participation to be harnessed in us. I think that's where it comes to, that's where it kind of started to bring out the best of me is when I get the pushback. If you, if you question why I should be looking for a managerial role, then I would say, why not? And if I need to go back to school, if I need to educate myself, if I need to learn from others, if I need to find a mentor, whatever I need, it takes, I'm happy to do it because I'm happy to actually question that status quo, you know? So that is exactly how that's, that's the light bulb, I think, for me. That's the flick switch. Every time I get a barrier or a systemic barrier, you know, like, oh, people seeking asylum don't have access to education. They've never had, you know, this, this society, this, the government don't support them. Then it kind of brings that thing in me of why not? Why can't we have that conversation now? You know, why is it, why is this the case? And I need to investigate it more and I need to do more about it and I need to change that narrative. You know, it's just, so that's mainly rebellion. Yeah, I settle for rebellion. Uh, I love that idea of rebellion. And uh, there's these really powerful sort of children's books um, out talking about influential figures and people, and that's called um, sort of Rebels for Little Boys or Little Girls or or Little Children. And it's ideas of people that are coming from backgrounds of hardship or or moments where they've been rejected and then they found a way Mm. to then become the first person to go to space or, you know, whatever it might be. And Mm. it's a little biographical story and it's that word rebellion or little rebels, you know, comes out a lot because it, Mm. 
we are a social species. We are a species that wants community, but we also want acceptance, don't we? And, and if you are oh. being questioned by those around us, why are you doing this? You're almost, a lot of people take it as a challenge on them. Oh, because you're working so hard, you're almost judging others for for not working as hard, which isn't the case for people that work hard. We're not ju- you're not judging the other, but that is often how it's taken. Even people that say, I'm not drinking alcohol, and others say, well, are you judging me for drinking alcohol? Or I'm a vegan. <laughs> well, then you hate me because I have meat or whatever it is. There's that yeah. difference that occurs. So that being a rebel, how did you, <laughs> was it hard? Was it a really hard process at first to be a rebel and say, you know what? If you're going to be offended or affected by my attitude, that's on you. I'm here to talk mm. and, and to be free and to, to give you my insights. But, you know, that's up to you to choose your attitude about how, you know, about what I'm doing. Did you have to go Yeah, it's, a, it's your judgment call and you're totally entitled to it. Like I walk into, I walk into rooms sometimes, you know, like conferences, meeting rooms, you know, leadership rooms, even when I was still looking for work. And and people would, you know, people have advised me, change your name, you know, change whatever, you know, do things differently just to accommodate the 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 racism in the environment and the lack of understanding and the naivety in our society about what you can bring. Because automatically, when people hear that you're a person seeking asylum, they put you in a box straight away. You know, even for myself, with with the with the level of um effort I'm making to meaningfully contribute to society. Once people hear that I'm from asylum-seeking background, they go, oh, okay. Like, it just becomes a default. You know, automatically, they've kind of penciled down your level of skill, your level of um, ability to think creatively or to contribute meaningfully kind of gets downsized, basically, you know, because they just kind of think, oh, if you're from asylum-seeking background, you're limited. You're limited psychologically, you're limited intellectually, and you probably don't, cannot contribute. And also people use your trauma against you. You know, like they go, oh, I don't want to involve a like that. that it might be a bit traumatizing. So let's, let's leave that. You know, let me determine my trauma and let me live with my trauma. Don't use it against me. So that it could be different ways where that kind of rebellion is required, you know, in order to kind of push and start to then challenge the status quo. But also, I think also, if people have made a preconceived judgment or an idea, like I walk into a room of 200 people, I'm probably the third person of color to walk into that room of black woman, and people look at you, everyone just centers their high, they just can't help it. And the first thing they want to hear, where are you from? You know, they start to single at you in, in that kind of spaces. But you know what? It's actually a strength as well. I find it as so much, such a big strength because you've made your judgment already. So whatever I say or do, does probably not change it. So let me be. So it kind of relieves. Once I see that reaction in people's faces, it takes away that pressure from me to actually prove myself or prove my level of intelligence or prove why I'm entitled to be in a space like that. You know, I just can't be bothered anymore. I have the most fun. I eat most of the food as they're walking by, you know, the cocktail. I pick everything and I drink everything. and I just enjoy myself because I know you've already made your judgment. So, so be it. You're entitled to it. Does that draw people to you? Does it draw people to you once you start being real and yourself and energized? Do you find that it actually attracts people to you rather than that, hey, stop staring at me or whatever it might have been that you mm. people might do? Yeah, it, it draws people to you because I don't go into spaces to try and start a conversation anymore and start to feel like I, I want to include myself. I, I just be, 
I just be, I, sometimes I might, I might be lucky to find someone I know and I just start chatting and then more people will come around because they want to know who this person is that is chatting with, with this person or whatever. But I've built a lot of beautiful relationships over time as well. And people look out for me and try to help me feel better or at ease. But I always tell them, you don't have to. To be honest, I can come into this room and not talk to anyone and leave and I'm still fine. I don't feel excluded at all. It's people's judgment and it's their call if they want to associate with me or not. And sometimes too, people will come to you with great intentions and best of intentions, but often it rubs wrongly on me because the first thing they want to hear is, oh, where are you from? They don't even, you know, what's your name? Where's that name from? Do you like it here? You know, it's got nothing to do with why we're in that room. You know, I know there's a place for curiosity, but the curiosity should should translate to discussing why we're there and what I'm trying to get. But they just f- narrow you and they kind of help you to actually know exactly that you're the only one in the room. You know, like they, they bring that singular view. You know, like I love this and TED Talk from Chiamamanda about the danger of a single story. That single story gets told over and over and over again because people just narrow you to who you are, the color of your skin, your background, your, your labels you know, of seeking asylum, of being a woman of color, of being a first, the only leader in this setting or the only person in the room. They just kind of build all those. The stickers are all over you. Like, it's just like a sticky note. Sometimes I come out of a room and I just feel like I need to rip something off. It's that glary. There's a big move at the moment in, in certain circles about this anti-identity politics movement. And I hear it maybe from a more privileged middle-aged white male saying, your identity shouldn't matter. Stop talking about your identity. And then there's others, and a bit like yourself, Abiola, that are talking about my identity matters and my diverse, you know, my background and perspective matters, you know, in a room of people, how, what I can bring to the table that might be different from you. But it's different. That's separate. That's important, but that's separate from finding the difference instantly Mm -hmm. between us. You know, we're not, we're much more similar than we are different, but our differences do count. It's it's just, a, I find it's a, a weird balance to, to pose in this political realm where you've got maybe the right wing saying, Black Lives Matter, you're trying to find something different that doesn't exist over there. Stop, you know, all lives matter, whatever it might be, which is completely wrong in so many ways, and we can unpack why. But then there's also the other side of, stop finding difference within me. We are the same. So then mm-hmm. identity actually, you know, where, how, how far do we take identity? How much does it matter? And when should it stop? And when should we find the collective sameness about us? Like there's a political barrier mm-hmm. there between the Andrew Bolts of the worlds and, and those types of people and then the others on maybe the extreme left that are trying to find every traumatic detail of your life to, that defines you more than anything else. And there's this, Mm. we have to find somewhere in the middle, uh, well, hopefully closer to that left side, as far away from Bolt as possible. But, you know, what can we do in that situation? Yeah, I think identity has its role. And that is where we need to kind of find, we just need to find the balance. There's no way you can see me and not know that I'm a black woman. Like, seriously, you don't need to ask that question again. It's so glary. (laughs) You know, like... There's there's no way people can be and there's there's a room for curiosity but I think when curiosity starts to cross the line 
it becomes discriminatory or it becomes a, a single story. And that is where we kind of need to f- draw the draw the line and find the balance. It's okay if I say my name is Abiola. You might not have heard of that name before. Oh, Abiola, where are you from? I'm from Nigeria. That should settle the discussion. You know, not, how long have you been here? Do you like it here? You know, where, you know, those kind of, it, it becomes, that's where it kind of gets to, into that intrusive space and you start to feel uncomfortable about being in that space and start to question whether you're actually meant to be there or not, or even people making you to feel like, you know, you're singled out in that environment. So I think it's actually that drawing the line of where curiosity and identity finishes and where humanity picks up after that. You know, like I've I've had I've helped people to progress the conversation sometimes, you know, and go, oh yeah, so um so which organization do you work for? You know, like I try to bring it to why to the to the present, you know, but they will still take you back to the past, you know, and they'll still try to take you back. And and it just varies. Sometimes you have to be very respectful of each other's um level of understanding in this space, particularly around cultural intelligence and all of that. And I don't feel like I should be a cultural intelligence lecturer just because of my skin. You know, so it can be a bit daunting and it can be a bit challenging to to draw the balance. But I think some people are very intentional about getting it right and are investing in the level of education or understanding or exposure required. And some people have actually asked me, you know, like you don't have to answer this if it's not appropriate. Or how do you feel if I ask you this question? Do you think it would be inappropriate? And I'll say yes, and I go, oh, I, I figured that out. And you know, I figured that out. So it could it could be dif- it could be differently approached. But I, I but now I'm getting to a space now. Like my daughters came to Australia when they were very young, and I even had one that I gave birth to here. But she till now even as a, as a young girl, still get asked whether she was born here and where she's from. And this is a girl that don't know any other space apart from Australia. So it could be, yeah, so it's, it's really hard in terms of being able to distinguish where we draw the line. But I, I will probably advise anyone that might be listening to this that in my own personal circumstances and my situation, where I want you to draw the line is where I close the conversation. You know, that is where I wanted to draw the line. Once I've said, oh, what's your name? I give you my name. That is fine. Once you ask me where you're from and I give you that, that conversation is closed. So for you to reopen it and reopen it means that you're crossing the line. Does that make sense? But if you ask me where you're from, where is, what's, oh, so Abiola, what's your name? I said, oh, my name is uh, Abiola and these are my four daughters, you know. And, and then you see that I've opened the conversation to another level and it actually gives that. So just being be mindful, be sensitive about other people's feelings and expression as well. You know, I've been on a train one day and there was a this clash between I think the South Sudanese man and a, and a lady, and they were having this conversation of where are you from? So I was listening very quietly and, and paying attention. So he was very happy to, you know, he engaged. And by the time he flipped the conversation to where are you from, the lady started getting angry. You know, don't ask me where I'm from. I was born here. I said, I was born here too, but you asked me where I'm from. So I'm entitled to asking you where you're from because they started to feel a bit like it's it's not, the question is not acceptable. So I, that's where I will come to the fact that start putting yourself in other people's shoes and re- being on the receiving hand, imagining yourself on the receiving hand. If you do that and you're very sincere and honest with your response, then you know when you should when you should draw the line and when you should keep going. I think that's a 
a lesson for, for many and, and that idea of respectful conversation and dialogue that comes into things, even with um, maybe gender, gender stereotypes or, or people that are transitioning and things like that. And as a teacher, it's often something that many teachers avoid, students that are, you know, identifying as a, as a woman when they were born biologically as a man or whatever. And you, you go, the, the, the openness is it closes off doors because people are scared of what to say and not, not to say, even as mm. teachers. So there's a level of education that needs to be around in, in all of these areas of society. Um, but also that because I don't want to necessarily answer the same question 500 times doesn't mean I don't want to be spoken to. Doesn't want to, doesn't mean I want to be avoided. It actually means mm. what would you do to talk to Mark Johnson down the road? What would you, you know, if you were talking to him on the train, what would the questions you might ask there, you know, it might be about a footy mm. team. It might be about mm. what you do for work first rather than those other questions. And then as you build, you know, rapport, then other questions might be more acceptable and and things like mm. yeah so i so i do understand that that journey and it's something that's really mm. tough i think for people to navigate that have the best of intentions as well so let's move then towards the work that you're doing today and mm-hmm. the the impact you're having on community and, and as a leader, what is it that this new innovation hub in, in the southeastern suburbs is aspiring to do? How did that come about? Was it something that you've been leading? Was it something that you created? Or was it something that um, was a discussion that was always going to happen in that, that area of, of Melbourne? What, what was the journey with creating this new hub for the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre? Thank you. That's a very good question. So I joined the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre in April 2016 and as the director of the Innovation Hub, covering two centres, which is the Footscray Centre, and also we have a small centre in Daninong. So the Daninong Centre has been existing now since 2013 as um, in a very small shop front where the center was operating. But I remember walking to the to the building the first day and seeing the level of energy and community in that small, tiny space and everyone just on top of each other, basically. And I was wondering, how does this happen? It was a very old building, tattered, things were falling apart. We knew it's not sustainable, but we didn't just know how to move forward from there, just because of the shared needs of people seeking asylum and the organization's ability to prioritize, you know, where our resources would lie. And, you know, we don't take federal government funding, so our resources are very limited in that space. But in 2017, when the decision was made by the federal government to revoke social status resolution support that people seeking asylum were being beneficiary of, which is 89% of Centrelink, that's when the destitution started. Prior to that, we were focusing on education and employment as a service provision in the Daninong area because people have that safety net. So it was about transitioning there successfully into employment and building those skills and language and literacy skills that are needed to engage successfully in a workplace setting. That was what we were focusing on. And a lot of people really want to contribute. So we had really high level of engagement in our classes and our pathways to employment program that we were running in that space. But in 2018, the need shifted and it becomes one of a risk of destitution. 
So our staff started to see people come through the door that were needing housing, needing education, and needing other things that are outside of what we provide, which is education and employment in the Dandenong region. So they were having to send people to Footscray, people traveling two hours. I live in that part of Melbourne as well. So sometimes I'm coming back from work and I'm seeing people dragging trolleys into the train station, still traveling that far. It just, I just feel that this is really unnecessary. This is unfair. You know, I just, I just, it just makes it so like a burden in your heart to be able to create a change. But in order to make that change meaningful and sustainable, we had to undertake a study, a study of the community, just to understand what the shifting in needs is what other community organizations are doing in that space so we don't create any duplication. And also being able to provide a clear recommendation to our board about what ASAS's mission and vision looking forward in that environment should look like and what's the role that we're best to play as an organization. So that study was successfully done in 2018 and it came back with six recommendations, clear recommendations. Those recommendations were still part of what we were seeing in Footscray. So it wasn't it wasn't something that was new to us, but just help us to understand that we need to shift our service offering and our service provision in the Dandenong region. So what we did as with that is we started to explore what would should the new service look like and how we'd be able to get there. Our organization was successful in approaching donors, and we had two donors that bought us the building in Dandenong. And that became the beginning of it. Because the key recommendation from our report came back that people need that sense of embrace. They need to know that they are not alone. They needed to reach out to other people that are seeking asylum and find a space and a community to really connect together and share their concerns and support one another. That was the key recommendation. The key recommendation was not that they needed housing or they needed food. They needed a sense of embrace. They needed a sense of community. So we needed. We knew that we need to have a space of our own where we can actually create that and bring it to life and help people to feel like a sense of home for them. We have that in Footscray. I don't know if you've been to our Footscray Centre, but you're walking and see people playing tennis, playing the pool, you know, everyone just having fun. That's the kind of the sense of embrace that they were looking for. So we knew that we needed to have a place of our own in order to do that and do that well. So that's how the journey started. And because I lead the Dandenong Center at the time, I automatically lead this beautiful project, which I've been really privileged and I've learned a lot from in that time. We started to explore what model was possible. How do we take it just from co-locating into an integrated service hub? How do we do that in a way that brings the community together and unifies us and meet the needs of our people and help them to move their life forward and and create a space where they can feel a sense of ownership and pride and dignity in Dandenong? And that's how the the building project started. So when you find out, you know, from these reports and all these different stakeholders about what's possible, how do you go from, you know, imagining a vision to implementing it, how how do you actually achieve that? Because that's so amazing and so inspiring that something can go from an idea to a reality and then also mm. how do you continue to enable the community to really feel a part of it, like this is for them. This is part, not mm. only for them but is them, you know? I think, I think it was really important for us to have that notion of not only for you, it belongs to you. And it's a space where you can feel like this, have a sense of belonging. So the Dandenong Building Project 
we started by undertaking the study, like I said, because we wanted that evidence-based approach. I, I, I'm always very passionate about people seeking asylum and about their journey and about how they are seen or perceived. So we wanted to get it right. There was 160 people that were consulted in that time that are seeking asylum in that region. And not only the people that were recipients of our service were also consulted, the ones that are not and we consulted community leaders to really help us to understand how we can get this right. And, and we, what we told the independent researchers was that we don't want them to send us recommendations that we have to dissect. We want recommendations that are clear enough to action because we want the community to know that if we've heard you, we will make it happen. So it, it was a commitment we made then. So it was very clear what the recommendations came back with. But in terms of really understanding what's the methodology and how we do this in a way that translates from idea into conception, was really trying to investigate what model would be best for us to do. So I spent a lot of time exploring a lot of models with my team and looking at what would be the ideal. It was also a time I had opportunity to go to Canada to visit my sister. So I visited a lot of organizations there as well that has a similar model to ASRC. So we got really, really good suit of ideas of how we could bring this to life and how we could ensure that the community was at the center of it. Also, we were able to leverage on the ACOS, the Austrian Council for Social Services model of integrated service delivery, because they had done the work um, and investigated it over time and have come up with this model that they think it works and it's best practice done in New Zealand. So we were able to investigate that and really align it to our members' needs and, and their and their cultural lens and, and representation as well. And, and that's how it's come to life. But I think the beauty of this is that we are building a new community. What I mean by a new community is that ASRC, for the first time, has had opportunity to really work with corporates, society, work with suppliers, work with um, builders, work with um, architectures, you know, communities that we probably not have the space to engage with. We've had over 65 organizations now that are contributing carpets, towels, toilets, sinks, tables, chairs, you know, different manufacturing company now coming on board and saying, we want to be part of this. We've also got the likes of the Ghana Davids architect and, and Jill Ghana, who's the Victorian chief architect, come on board as well. We've been able to build this beautiful community around it. We've had about three working bees before COVID started, which saved us about $50,000. And this is just people in the community putting their hand up to say, I will come and work for four hours and help to knock down walls, help to do whatever it needs to be done, just to make this building possible. We had people seeking asylum there as well, putting their bits to it. So we've actually just become a beautiful new community that we are creating now, where it actually brings us in together a bit more. And we've been consulting, we've been consulting all the way as well with the local community, with local agencies. We run about three information sessions. We've been working with uh, key partners that have now been identified to establish a new principle of working whereby people seeking asylum is at the center of it. We don't want it to be a service delivery for service delivery purposes. We want it to be an enabler for people to thrive, regardless of what level they have come into the center with. So there's, it's a lot of work. I know so many effort has gone into it, so many expertise, so many learnings and reflections along the way as well. But I think we're building something that will be a very beautiful, wonderful legacy for the ASRC and for the asylum-seeking community at large. 
Oh, that's brilliant. And, and it would have brought so much joy to those people that are helping. I think uh, you mentioned earlier that being engaged is different from giving a little bit of money, which is fantastic too, but actually being there and, and feeling that optimism and joy and hope, that would be really empowering for many people too. It is. It is. Do you get a sense of optimism then now in general when you when you see things like this start to develop and start to find success? Do you... Do you say that, you know, all of these things that I know that I often spend my time thinking about the negative things that often surround society and the world, does this transform you into an optimist or were you already there as an optimist, do you think? <laughs> I don't think I'm there as an optimist and I don't think it's me <laughs> as an optimist. I've never thought about it that way anyway, so I'm, I can't really answer the question honestly. But what I would say in terms of how it's actually changed things is like, it's never intended to be this this project that becomes a limelight of this sort. It was just about building a home and a future for people seeking asylum. That was exactly what it was about. And that's why we put all the effort and also now seeing the level of attention and all the things and community rallying around it was just, just so beautiful to see. It's very humbling, to be honest. It's very, very humbling because the intention was just to listen to people, provide that support, build a hope, build a future, build something they can be proud of, build something that can also outlive us, outlive ASRC, outlive myself, outlive people that have been part of this and really build a, a, a generation into the future that will find that space as a home and a future for them. So that is, that's exactly what it has been about. It's never been a, about, yeah, ticking the box or having an achievement or a title or whatever. It's never been that way. It's it's now seeing it coming to life. To be honest with you, I'm 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 amazed as much as so many people are. Like it's very humbling. It's very, very humbling environment to be in because the intention was always gonna be about creating a home and a future for people sitting asylum. I think that's a beautiful sentiment to say that, you know, it's about finding a need, finding something that you wish existed or that you've talked to people mm. that wish something existed and, and making it happen rather than saying, you know, what legacy, as you said, what can I have? What, you know, that, that'll come and it's not even the, the be all and end all at all. Um, but it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. It's never, it's never, it's never about that. I never even thought about it that way. Like now people say, Oh, what an amazing project. Have you you doing well? And I think about it. Oh, okay. Like it just, it doesn't even register in my head, and I don't think I've even seen it that way, to be honest. I don't think it's going to be anyone's legacy. I think it's going to be the legacy of the community because the community are, are the bedrock of this project and have been since day one. Then let's um, discuss a little bit about the ASRC in general. You know, you mentioned Footscray and the, the amazing place that is. What What's going on there? What What is it that it's helping um, society? You know, who's involved and... And how does it work? And then also the vision for Dandenong and, and the similarities and differences to Footscray that that will have. And then maybe if people are interested and inspired by this, how they can be on board and, and start to, you know, maybe make a difference as well. Hmm. I think Footscray is very magical, to be honest with you. I think it's magical. It's got about over 40 services and programs under the same roof. It's a wraparound approach. It, although we are supporting people at critical junctions of their lives, so it doesn't mean that someone will come today and then have to go through the entire 40 services. No, that's not how the model is designed. The model is designed as a tailored need 
for people at different critical junctions of their lives. But the beauty of it is that this is a community that's been locked out of resources. And this is a community that's been locked out of mainstream agencies. It's a community that has not been supported even by with having basic their basic needs met. And to know that an organization like ASRC is there to exist to support them, I think it's really incredibly valuable for our society at this time. And also, I believe that also because of the transition to employment, transition to self-actualization, to independence, to active contributors to the Australian economy and society at large, I think that's a good legacy and representation of people seeking asylum that would like to see. Enough of talking about them as a de- deficiency, as a defect, as a, as a burden to society. We want to start to create that narrative and that and seeing the evidence already coming to fruition of how people have been able to embrace a new life and a new journey in Australia. And I think that's one of the beauty of ASRC, supports people along the journey and at different points through innovation, evaluation, and, and active collaboration. So we're working with the broader society. We're working with different forums, different groups, the Rural Australian for Refugees, the big um, not-for-profit organisation, the smaller not-for-profit organisation, different employers and local businesses that are taking people on and giving them their first job in Australia. So whatever that looks like, we've got a very big membership based of people seeking asylum, about 6,000 of them. But at the same time, we've got a big community based around us. And that's what it makes it a movement. And that's what I love about it. What comes to mind is that idea of, I spoke to Rebecca Scott a while ago um, on Moments of Clarity as well from Street. And, and she discussed how there's government that want to do what's right, but there's so much red tape and, and things that get in the way of actually succeeding. Then there's big business that, you know, have profit at the top. So, you know, mm-hmm. if if doing good is going to get in the way of that, oftentimes they, they remove the goodness from whatever it is they're doing to, to get the profit. Then there's charity as well, and charity being something that does great but often lacks the resources and relies on handouts a lot of the time. Mm. And then mm. there's, she spoke about the, the idea of social enterprise, you know, trying to do, have a really great thriving business, but its intention isn't just profits, it's, it's to actually do great. Where does the ASRC fit into that? world, what makes it super successful and and a model that can be maybe used by others, do you think? And is there some other little operation you you could see it adding in the future that could make it even thrive even more, do you think? I know it's a big question. (laughs) (laughs) I'll try and answer it as best as possible. I think ASS is going to clock 20 years next year. It's, It's a mixed emotion for us. You know, mixed emotion because we don't even believe we'll be in business for this long. And also, it's also good emotion because we are still able and and have the means and the resources to support people. So people are not being left behind in society. So it's actually very mixed emotion. But what I would say is that yes, as a position itself, as an authentic organization, I have great respect for Rebecca. I've worked um, with her a number of initiatives and and she's a very, very dynamic woman, and she's best placed to be speaking in the enterprise um, space. And I think we've worked with her as well as an organization throughout two social enterprises, our cleaning and our catering service. But I think ASAC cut across all of that, cut across all of that because of our multidisciplinary approach and also because of the human-centered approach 
that we apply to our service offering as well. We've got two social enterprises going at the moment. We've also got about 40 programs and services to support people's journey. And, and out of those 40 services to support people's journey, there's some really, really strong and established and could even be their own entity within that as well. Our legal service, for instance, you know, uh, advocacy, um, the, um, our lobbying and all of that, and also the innovation hub where we support people to thrive. So I think that approach of supporting people's critical junction and enabling them to enhance their economic and social participation and doing that not only as an organization or an enterprise, but as a movement in a way that brings the whole of community along with us. I think that's one of the key success of, of ASRC. And we are very proactive and reactive at the same time. We're a very responsive organization. We invest in what we've committed to society that we would invest in. We also create the space and opportunity for people to input into our organization on an ongoing basis so that that trust is well cemented and the credibility across our work and our practice is very well established. And I think that's what gives ASAC an edge and I think gives a lot of organizations of similar um, ethics an edge as well. Yeah, but that's, I think, I think the ASAC model is a model that can be applied in different fronts and different environments, particularly when it comes to supporting vulnerable communities and having that wraparound and holistic approach to how service is transitioning people from one journey, one level of their, um, their journey to the other. Obviously, yourself and many others that work at the ASRC, but also Con himself, who created and then leads the, as CEO. What is he like as a person? And I see him being so active and never, ever stopping his work, no matter how big he grows as a figure, you know, he's just constant and always down to earth from what I've seen. What have you learned from him and, and what sort of relationship have you got to be able to say, look, this, this guy's, you know, the, the authentic side that you talked about earlier? Mm. Mm. Con will probably be, <laughs> not like me talk about this in public, but I always identify him. I think for Con, I have a personal relationship with him as well, which I'm very privileged to. He's someone that has been fighting for people like myself even before I became part of the organization. He's someone that has never rested and never um, took a, taken a break about ensuring that people seeking asylum are treated with a level of dignity and pride, um, dignity and honor that they deserve to live in a society like ours successfully. So he's really, really passionate man. I cannot underestimate his level of of passion. And I always ask him, I don't know how you sleep at night, because he's always thinking about innovative ways and, and, and different creative ways at which we continue to increase our, our service, you know, and our and provision of our service in order to give our people sickness asylum and our members, we call them members, the best of, of, of what we can offer to support their journey and, and, their, and, their, and maintain their level of agency and control about their lives. So it's, it's a very dynamic man. It's very unique in nature. But I also consider him as a mentor. I consider him as a father that I never had. 
And the reason why we use that word father in public and use it very strongly is because he is. Con is a very, very honest, loving, and sincere man. He wants the best for everyone, regardless of who you are. He's never giving me an opportunity or a space to feel less of myself. He's always supporting my journey, always supporting my course, always very there to lend a hand and support wherever I have initiatives or or services that I think might support people's journey. It's always helped to bring the best out of me as well. It's always, yeah, it, it, it calls me a trailblazer. You know, like, he, he's, such a, he's such an inspirational man. You know, like, you look at him and go, you know what? This is what I want to be doing for humanity. This is the kind of life I want to live. I want to be sold out to whatever I do because I think he's sold out. He's very, very... Um, so that's what it do, and it's very committed to it, and it's very consistent at doing it as well. It's not a person that um, talk to talk, even though people see him, you know, doing videos every day and talking. He's very intentional, man. He's intentional about his works. He's intentional about what he does. He's intentional about creating a, a sustainable change in our society, and that's something I love about him and I respect so much about him. Yeah. Yeah, and and and. The purpose of that work, and it's probably changed over time from a moment of asylum seekers being in the media as these boat people and bad people in the media from the start, then to a, an area where you said that there was a bit more support and it was about actually um, having people seeking asylum. They've got the safety net, but now it's time to empower these uh, people as people in society and, and get involved to then being at the point where without a place like the ASRC, that they're living in serious poverty because of mm. the lack of federal government action at the moment. Mm. What sort of scenarios are people facing at the moment? What is, I know that you've said this uh, across this, that you can't have a single story, but mm. you know, what sort of range of stories are there of people and what would happen without the help of your organisation as well as the other ones that exist to people in this place that people love and they put the flag on their arm and they say it's the best country on earth and it's lucky and, you know, what's gonna ha- what, what, what is the reality for so many people that are as Australian as anybody else? Mm. And that's a very interesting question. Thanks for that. I think, yeah, I'm hoping not to get emotional because I think... This country is really missing out on the on the value that people, such as people seeking asylum, can contribute. They, they, it's been underestimated. Like I think about the men locked in Mantra Hotel. Like it's been seven months now. This, these are people that could be out and about, helping building this country. They want to. They have the time. They have the energy yet we are messing up with their mental health. And by the time we finish done with them, they have most of the cases in those kind of circumstances no good to anyone and themselves. And that's the kind of bridge that we have as a nation are putting our name and our reputation to, which is very, very disappointing. I feel like people seeking asylum, you know, they are me. So I think I can talk and I can represent them that way. Because that's who I am. That's that's. It's not who I am as a person, but it's a journey that I've been through. And I know it for a fact. I know where I am before. I know where I am now. And I don't think I'm that superior 
to anyone seeking asylum. And I believe they can give their best to anything that they find themselves doing as well. So one of the things I probably um, always say in that regard is that as a society, as a nation, we have so much, so much to benefit. We've seen that happen in Canada. All the people that are seeking asylum mm-hmm. and, um, and working in the front line during COVID have been given permanent residency now because they see the value that they were able to contribute. What if our nation could see the value and we start to translate? It doesn't, it doesn't impact on our border security. It doesn't impact on our on us lighting a, a, a process in any way. These people are already here. Some of them are here for 10, 12 years. Like their lives are wasting up in front of their eyes. What, how could someone's mental health be destabilized like that? You know, like we have told to lock ourselves indoor for six weeks and even in our own homes, in my own bed. I can walk to the lounge, I can walk to the kitchen, I can go to the supermarket, I can go to the doctor's. You know, and we're still struggling. Imagine people that are locked in an hotel and all they can see is the lights through their window for seven months. How detrimental is that to people's mental health and well-being? These are people that have successfully passed the clearance and um, security clearance, health clearance, you know, like things that could that could be used as posing a risk to society has already been cleared off before even bringing them in here. And yet we're choosing to lock them up. Yet we're choosing to not allow them to contribute back to society. Yet we're choosing to keep them in a cage, basically, and, 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 and destroy their mental health. We're destroying their mental health. I'm sorry to say it, but we're destroying their mental health. We're destroying their being, their sense of being, their sense of, their sense of who they are, which is being destroyed at the front of their eyes. And these are people that have left families behind, left people behind, and just in a very terrible state. I cannot imagine it, to be honest with you. I cannot imagine how they could still wake up every morning and still have a hope of a brighter future. I don't, I don't know how they do it. Like six weeks lockdown is so challenging, so draining. And just imagine people that have been there for seven months or even in detentions overseas for five, six years now and still not having a, a determination or a future that they can start to rebuild their life on. So it's really very, it's, it's, it's appalling. I don't know how else to say it. It's, it's appalling. And to know that this is being done with an intention of protecting us as a society when, that is, when they have no risk, no risk to society, that's already been cleared. And all this is being framed to say, oh, we're doing the society a favor by locking fellow human beings up for that long. It's appalling. Anyway, put that aside. I will probably say that people seeking asylum and organizations like ASRC and the like that are supporting people are better off because we exist. They're better off because they're not forgotten. They're better off because their issues are still brought to limelight. They're better off because organizations like ours serve as a voice for those that are voiceless or their voices are not being heard. And they serve as a, as a medium to bring the society and the community into awareness of the level of injustice that is happening all on our names, all on our behalf, you know. I think that's one of the beauty of organizations like ESRC is that we can make that invisible visible. 
Because we often say, if it doesn't affect me, then it's none of my business. But it affects us all. And I think that's one of the things that organizations like ours are showcasing. And also we're making sure that we are building, we are becoming a strength and a hope and a support for people to be able to look past the, 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 the situation that they're going through now and start to imagine a future in the midst of the uncertainty. Thank you, Abiola, for being so honest and vulnerable there and, and speaking truth too and, and being, you know, raw and real because it's it's needed and it's necessary. And usually I, I debate whether this is a canvas platform for me to open the stories of others and allow things to be said with me not saying much or do mm. I use this platform as somewhere where I can speak you know, a, a bit of the truth too. But uh, when you're talking there, Mantra Hotel is in my suburb, Preston, where I've grown up. It used to be the hospital that I went to. It, it, it is a place that it's right there, you know, and, and I drive past and every three trips past, I do think about that and I say how horrible, but then it's like, what can I do? And that makes you feel horrible. And this is the intention of understanding mm. values. And I think at the very least... That's a, that's the first step is to realize that that is wrong. It's horrible. Mm. It's in, it's it's unjust. It's um, it's doing a disservice. But and and I think it's okay to grieve and and feel really sad about something that's not really directly in your control. I mean, we have the power to vote and to speak up and to be activists and to do all of that, which is extremely important. And that's the next step. But so many people. I feel that I speak to see that and remove themselves and they'd say, it, it, it must be okay, all right, it's too expensive to house people, whatever. But the fact is that having these detention centres or prisons and now the hotel, it's way more expensive than having these people live in society and contribute to society. Very expensive. The um, amount of yeah. money that's been put into that could actually put them in society buy them a property that they own and help them to start an established business, which they would have been employing people in as well. Like it's so expensive. I don't know how else to describe it. I think Refugee Council of Australia has done some cost modeling on their website around that. It's extremely expensive. It's a very wasteful resource of both human resource and financial resource. So no matter how we look at it, you know, it, whether we're looking at it, people want to talk about costs, people want to talk about, as you said, border protection, people, all of these things, there is actually no fact-based reasonable position to have that allows mm. this to happen. We have to pin it to our values. And that is why we as leaders are communicators of value. That is all we can do. We have to align it with our values. We have to communicate our values. We have to help people to bring that conversation to life and contribute based on their own value system as well. And, and, and that is where the representation and the action and the change would occur. Because no matter how you want to describe this, you can use different lens, economic lens, social lens, safety lens, whatever lens you want to look at it. It's always this justification on every ground. But let us bring it back to our values. Who are we as a nation? As individuals, what do we stand for? And use that to actually make decisions. It changes the narrative completely. I've often been um, uh, told that I lack compassion because I haven't been able to see 
the deep hurt and pain that people like me in my position, my level of privilege and background and circumstance have had due to the pandemic and the, the lockdown. And oftentimes I think I use examples of people locked up in various different parts of the world, but also at the Mantra Hotel or, you know, in offshore detention or wherever it might be, that we have so many segments of society that are locked up without any freedom for no social benefit with no way out, no sign of what, when it's going to end, for no purpose that exists in these circumstances, as you said. So where is your perspective when you're yelling down the, 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 the key, you know, typing away horrible things towards different people, you know, that you're mm-hmm. unable to, to see that, you know what, there's many ways to look at this lockdown. It could be too much. Maybe it's not. But, but what we're doing... As at the value level is stopping people dying. We're, we're hoping to open up at the end of it, you know, and it's a short-term thing with money being handed to you to survive and, and, and even to thrive. I mean, people can choose to exercise, get fit, spend time with their family, you know, um, use this time. There's different circumstances I'm aware, but that perspective is often lacking with a lot of people. I'm off social media because it, it just it drives me a little bit um, crazy uh, to, to see the lack of perspective. But then, I, again, I've been in positions where I've lacked perspective. I've, I'm a teacher, so I'm still working and getting paid as normal and, and able to just distract myself, I guess, from, you know, the eight hours that's now missing from someone's life where they're, they're only think they're doom scrolling and thinking of the worst. And I understand that there is the mental health issues and all of those elements of compassion, but oftentimes we're in our bubble and we don't see that perspective. And that is something that I want to get off my chest to just say to people that you're allowed to hurt and you're allowed to feel pain and you're allowed to understand that, but there, there there's also a, an option to feel that and then actually expand that to the pain that others feel that you don't, you haven't met, that you don't know personally, that feeling that bit of grief and pain and, and un- uncertainty is powerful because you can now transfer that to people in Australia but around the world, Indigenous community, everywhere that are suffering and have suffered for a long time rather than using it to say, mm-hmm. I want it back the old way stuff everyone else I want to I'm going to be even more ruthless than I was before because of this or whatever you know mm. that's a struggle isn't it that, that we're facing as a society mm. today it's a big struggle it's a big struggle and with the impact of COVID on all our lives so many people have lost their jobs now employment has become increasingly competitive like never before this the situation is just becoming quite dire for the broader community, imagine the ruthless decisions that are being made at the same time when even communities are struggling to look after themselves. Many men that have been in Australia since 2013, 14, that have come out of community detention are now being given final departure visa. Nowhere to depart them to. We are in COVID, the borders are locked sent out into the community and saying, okay, we're not locking you in anymore. We want to send you out into the community. But as soon as you kick, they kick you out, no financial assistance, no support with accommodation, no support with Medicare, nothing. In 
this time, in this COVID time, those things don't add up because people tell me, I realize it's because you're working in that space. It's because you're biased about it. It's because, you, you know, this, this is a very cause that is close to your heart. That is fine. But there's a space for what is ethically appropriate. There's a place of what, what, how humanity can respond to things, you know, without robbing yourself of, of, of your ability to think clearly and imagine yourself in other people's shoes. I think our nation is just getting to a space now where we need some reset, basically. We need to reset. You know, I was reading the other day about, you know, adding Australian values to the citizenship test. But the questions, all the questions that are asked as part of the values, they are not even value-based questions. Like, seriously, what are we doing what are we doing? Why are we increasing our level of discrimination and hatred within our system? Why are we permitting that? We say something, we do the other. Like asking someone in a citizenship test if new arrivals should be encouraged to speak English or learn English. How is that got to do with an Australian values? What is even an Australian value? We need to actually answer that as a nation. There needs to be an exercise of understanding that and underpinning it. So many people will say, oh, maybe, you know, the barbecue and, you know, other things that Australians do. That we need to actually be tangible. The values needs to be tangible. So it drives our decision as a nation. It drives the way we live. It drives the way we do things. It drives the way we work. So we need to come down to those kind of value-based conversation and it has to be very tangible otherwise we'll keep questioning whether something is right or wrong because we have nothing to measure it against we've got so much data so many numbers so much at our disposal that we're bombarded by information but as you say we 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 don't know where to to put that because we haven't as maybe even a world at the moment we don't understand where our values sit and how that fits in. You know, I don't care if all of a sudden, I mean, look, AI could come out and say, you know what, humanity doesn't deserve to live anymore. That statistically we're doing this amount of damage and this, so let's just wipe out humanity and everyone presses the button and we're done. It's like, hang on. Well, yeah. if we look at everything on, on a numbers and we don't look at, I mean, what about the beauty that can come out? We, we have to improve but it doesn't mean we need to be wiped out. And that goes on the climate level, the, the humanitarian level, the wars, the poverty. And we have the skills right now to fix it. And I think um, it's just that value, the value set that might be missing. I want to go to something positive and then a, couple, uh, a, question, <laughs> a question after that. But we do need to delve into the muck to understand why we need to be positive and hopeful and, and ambitious, I guess. So I'm glad we did that. But what can someone that's listened to this conversation that wants to help out at the ASRC and understand more about asylum seekers and helping asylum seekers, what can we do today, especially around your work in Dandenong and the Innovation Hub? And what steps can people take right now, I guess? The people that are looking to help the ASRC or support with the Dandenong Building Project can go to the ASRC website, which is asrc.org.au, to donate towards that project. And also we have a, a, a space on our website that people can express an interest to volunteer or even to donate in kind uh, or materials or whatever to the project as well. That would be greatly appreciated. And I guess with um, over, well, so many different ways to actually 
provide resources, not just money and time, but also different expertise would be required along the journey. So I think anybody that's listening mm. can can have a unique way to to make a difference. I'm I'm certain if if they I guess get in touch. My final question at the end of every podcast, Abiola, is about a moment of clarity that you've experienced recently. So have you experienced a moment of clarity today, recently, in the past that has made a difference to your life that you'd like to share with us today? Mm. (laughs) That's a very big question. That's a very big question. I think a moment of clarity for me, like I said earlier, is what I'll come back to, which is the Black Lives Matter. It was a very definitive moment in in recent times for me it was a time it helped me to realize the change i needed it helped me to understand my existence and helped me to understand the opportunities i have and why i owed the platform that i hold and how i could position myself as an agent of change for the better and also helped me to realize that living my life according to my color or as my color as an alibi for excuses is living a life of waste. And I need to kind of rise to the challenge of creating a society and a community that I would like to see. So I think that was a moment of clarity for me. That's wonderful. It, it, it would be a perfect time to stop, but I do have one further thing to touch on from that question, which is, and I know we're running out of time, but very quickly, I often see it as a Black Lives Matters to the rest of everyone, you know, where that people of colour or, you know, black people are saying we matter to white people, but it's you're saying it's an empowerment and a, and a almost something for yourself to realise as well. Is that is that, mm. I'm getting that right? Yeah, it was, a, it was a definitive moment of realisation, of awakening, I probably would say, of an awakening of self, an awakening of, of mission, and an awakening of how you fit in and stand out at the same time in this kind of society and also in the world at large. And I also feel that that historical moment helped me to really understand or validate all my contributions so far and validate why I'm so fired up and passionate about the things I'm passionate about and why it's important. And people would say, you know, why should we continue to talk about Black Lives Matter? We are trying to uniform ourselves. We're trying to build a one community. We are trying to build a human humanness, you know, around us and, and not segregate ourselves anymore. And by the time you start talking about people of color, talking about Black Lives Matter is, is segregating us because all life matters, I would probably say that's actually why we should talk about it. Because if all lives actually do truly matter, Black lives need to start to matter. Oh, Abiola, thank you so much for your insight, wisdom, experience, your journey, and for being honest and sharing that, being vulnerable and open. I, I sometimes question you know, this is my hobby and, and something, but it is powerful for me to have these conversations personally. And I know a lot of people that listen take a lot out of it too. So you inspire me to keep going with your work and, and to try to do more every day. And that that is an amazing thing. So thank you for being such a great leader. Oh, thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me and thanks for the opportunity to to express myself in an open and authentic way. And I hope that it comes across that way to the listeners as well. I'm sure it will. Thanks you so much. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks for your time, Mark. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback or have access to someone you believe could be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast or on Twitter at Barney MOC. You can also email me on Moments of Clarity Podcast at gmail.com. My name is Barney and thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.